You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. All right, turn in your copy of God's Word then to John 6, 16 through 21. We continue our series, Come and Believe, with just taking the next section in the book of John as we uh, uh, explore this next scene in, uh, in, in, the, in the gospel of John. And didn't Pastor Eric do a great job last week taking us through the feeding of the 5,000, explaining this and helping us apply and walk through that profound story um, and thank you for freeing me up to go serve our, our uh, church plant, Living Hope, there in South Austin. They send their greetings. It was a great joy to worship with them. And let me just encourage you, church, uh, uh, let's not stop praying for them. Yes, they're launched, but they're, you know, a new young church. And so let's continue to uh, lift them up in, in prayer and also be inviting people. If you know that are in that, like, South Austin, the Kyle Corridor there, uh, let's be pointing them to this uh, church. There are some invite cards and things even that we we have out there in our resource uh, area there to uh, out those doors and to the left that you can uh, uh, get. But let's make sure that we're praying uh, for them as well. All right, let me ask this question as you look for John 6. How many of us this morning, look here for a second, how many of us uh, on our phone or device have some sort of weather uh, alert or notification or an app that uh, uh, is communicating to you the weather outside? Anybody? Just show of hands. Do you have one of those on your phone? Yeah, pretty much all of us. I do on the, my home screen of my phone. I have the little thing that tells me the temperature it is right now and the highs and lows for the day. And there's other apps and things that you have that will alert you if storms are coming or weather fronts or all those things. But why do we have them on our phone? Why, why, why do we download them? Why do we want that information readily available to us? Yeah, it's, it's helpful, right, to plan so we can be prepared, uh, so we can dress appropriately and plan a- accordingly. You probably looked at it this morning, or maybe you didn't, and then you walked out the door in your church clothes and realized, it's a little colder than I thought, right? <laughs> it's a little wet out here. The wind is, is blowing, and it's helpful for us so we can be prepared. And, and maybe if we take it to an extreme case, maybe we have it, if we're really honest, is because we're also fearful of being unprepared being caught in a storm, being caught in the cold, being caught uh, unprepared and away from the resources that we would have to be more comfortable. But either way, whether we have them because because it's helpful or we're fearful, either way, weather is one of those forces that we encounter every day that makes us realize just how not in control we really are. Not out of control like we are wild, but just how not in control we are of our atmosphere, of the uh, surroundings that we live out our every day. And it is scripture that will repeatedly uh, remind us that it is God who is the one who is in control, both in the sense that he created the natural world around us, he created the heavens and the earth, but also that he controls them. Consider just uh, God's challenge to Job in the ending chapters of that great book of Job. Just listen to these as God is speaking to Job. He asks these questions. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. 
Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? That's Job 38, 4 through 7. He continues on in verses 34 and 35 with these questions. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Now to those questions, how do we answer? No. Of course, no, we cannot. Any more than that we stayed up all night with the lightning flashing in our windows and things like that. Who of us could just wake up and say, lightning, go to bed because I want to go to bed? None of us do. Every storm really mocks us with the same questions that God brings to Job because we all know the answers. God controls the natural world. We just simply cultivate it and live under it. And Jesus will demonstrate this in today's text uh, for us in a passage that's likely very familiar. Maybe even if you are unfamiliar with your Bible, you've at least heard this story uh, or at least rumors of it, of Jesus walking on the water. And so join me in the text. Let me read it. You follow along. This is John 6, 16 through 21. And let's uh, read it and discover what uh, John has for us to believe and how to have life in his name. Listen here as I read. It says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, this is God's word to God's people. And it's a brief account here of a massive sign with profound significance for the original readers and for us. And while it doesn't give many details here, John pairs it right at the end of the feeding of the 5,000 to show us and those original readers is that Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses, who was a mediator and a cultivator of God's promises. Moses, who uh, uh, was prayed for and mediated for the people of God so that they were fed while they journeyed through the wilderness there in Exodus. And as they walked through the Red Sea uh, there, Moses was there. But now uh, Jesus is, is greater. And so John is pairing these two stories together so that we believe this central truth. Write this down in your notes. It is this, that Jesus is the creator and controller of the natural world. We know that God is these things, and so now through these two signs, now we are drawn to this conclusion here that Jesus, being God, is the creator and controller of the natural world. Moses may have been a mediator in a few instances, but only God has complete control. And this instance here in this text and the two texts paired together demonstrate that Jesus is God. Where in verse 15, Jesus would escape as they are trying to, uh, uh, to crown him as, as king. Now Jesus here has left his mountain 
the mountain itself being a symbol of God's uh, or of a king's throne, he has left his throne to come into the world of the disciples, defying the laws of gravity and flotation to stroll across these house-sized waves, stopping the wind and rain in its tracks, and seems to teleport that boat all the way through time and space to arrive immediately at the other side of the sea. It's profound when we just stop and think about it for a moment, even in the brevity of the details. It's, it's, we're not really given much here, but in the brevity of the details, we see a profound significance with three things in order to have life in his name. If the truth that is at the center of the text to believe is Jesus is the creator and controller of the natural world, here's how we have life in his name. Write this down. It's the first point from the first few verses. In the absence of details, beware of assumptions. In the absence of details, beware of assumptions. This is a truth for us to have life in his name. And this point is drawn out from verses 16 and 17 here, the verses, but also as just a larger hermeneutical principle of an understanding God's word. Church, do we want to be good with our Bibles? Yeah, we do, right? We, we, we want to understand the author's intent. We want to understand why a text of Scripture is before us. And so we want to be careful, Bible students, to uh, understand what it is that we are intent to, to, to draw out here. And see, here's the, the reality. is our imaginations. We like to fill in the gaps to, to take creative license sometimes with the Scriptures, which isn't all bad. Don't get me wrong. But we must use caution when coming to the Scripture of not just allowing our imaginations to run unrestrained with the things of God and then to draw conclusions from the the text. We must slow down and just make some observations before we get to, well, what does it mean? And then to apply it and, well, what does it mean for me? It's just to slow down and not rush when we come to the text. See, here's just uh, something to embrace and to, to come to grips with, is that the Holy Spirit wasn't in a rush when he was inspiring people to write the, the, the Bible. The Holy Spirit wasn't in a rush when he was inspiring John to write this account. He's very intentional about the details that are included and also excluded from the text. And the Spirit had Matthew and Mark include additional details, which are super helpful as we try to put together a more comprehensive understanding of the event. And that's good in one sense to more fully understand the event through the multitude of eyewitnesses of the event. But in another sense, we have to just come to understand that John has a point to make for them and then for us. For we know John is purposeful. I've already said it multiple times here that he has one purpose in the book. He reveals it to us at the end. Not every author does that. Sometimes they you know, leave it a mystery and want us to come to, uh, to figure it out. But he wants us to know that, uh, that he wrote these things so that we would believe Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing that we'd have life in his name. It's John 20, 30 and 31. But just come to the details now that we do have in this text as in, in 16 and 17 as he sets the scene. Let's just do some observation, right? What does it, it say? He tells us when this is happening. When evening came. So it's evening time. We, can, uh, we observe, okay, this is at, at night. The sun is starting to, to go down. And if we jump ahead and we, we learn that it's now dark. Okay, so there's a little time. It's evening into dark. And who is there and who's not at this 
event. His disciples, right? If we just take the text. His disciples, they went down to the sea. So we got when, it's evening, who, the disciples, and they're where they went down to the sea. And then they got into a boat. And the sea is, they start across the sea to Capernaum. Okay, so they're at the Sea of Galilee. And we know where they're headed. And now it's dark, but who's not with them? Jesus, right? Jesus not. It's nighttime. It's the disciples. Not there. They're on the sea here. Okay, and so, so what? Seems pretty simple, right? But the details are important. And here's the thing. As we begin to uh, uh, work our way through the text and, and, and then think deeply on them, many of these disciples were fishermen. And so they would have known, and the original audience would have known, that this is a risky situation to be in. Being on the Sea of Galilee at night in a wooden boat. They're not in a yacht. They're not in a nice motorized boat, you know, with a, a roof over their heads or anything like No, think of like a wooden John boat propelled by, uh, by oars, right? Manpower. Nighttime on the Sea of Galilee isn't a time to be messing around. And so here's the, the thing, like before we make assumptions about a text like this, like, well, what are they doing out there? What is the risk? Well, Matthew 14 tells us that Jesus told them to get into the boat and to go. And so they're just operating by faith, even at the, uh, uh, at, with great risk of a storm before them. And so let me just encourage us on this point as we get into the text. Let's be good good with our Bibles, good about making observations, good about being slow to come to conclusions uh, when it comes to interpretations and applications of our Bible. Let's just slow down and observe these things to ask good questions, to pay attention to the details and to the words that the Spirit inspired and had written down through these Bible authors. But this is also a good lesson for us in our relationships. In our, uh, in, in, in our interpersonal and church relationships here, let's be uh, quick to listen, good about asking questions, slow to get angry, and slow to make assumptions about people in our relationships. Just think, if we employed those things in our, in our relationships with other people, how many conflicts would be avoided? If in our marriages we were slow to speak and quick to listen and good about asking questions and resisting the temptation to make assumptions in the absence of details, how many fights would have been avoided? If we just slowed down and chose out of love, like 1 Corinthians 13, to believe the best, to hope the best, instead of just assuming the worst about the other person. But sometimes a narrative can get created in our minds that then gets stuck and it's all just entirely imagined. But this is especially true and especially tempting when we're panicking, when we're afraid, when we're feeling threatened by storms of life or storm in a relationship or storms and things that come to threaten us. But as the text goes on, see, here's the second way to have life in his name. It's that in the midst of the storms, be in awe of Jesus. In those moments when we are panicking, when we are afraid, in the midst of storms, here's the thing, be in awe of Jesus. Come back to the text and just how it continues, and let's continue making some observations. In verse 18, it says, the sea became rough. Now, that's maybe an understatement, right? 
because rough has a variety of, of meanings. Uh, it has a spectrum of understanding. If, if I asked you, you know, or you asked me, rather, like, how was the trip over to, to, to church this morning? And I said, it was rough. Well, what could that mean? All kinds of things. It was rough because uh, the traffic was bad. It was rough because uh, my windshield wipers weren't working and I couldn't see. Or it was rough and I got into a, a, a near-fatal accident, right? And all that would fall under the banner of, of, of rough. Or if you ask me, hey, how did your sports team do last night? How did the Bucks do? And I was like, man, it was a rough game. I could have all kinds of meaning here. Why was it rough? Because the officiating was bad? Because people couldn't make their shots? Or what was it all about? And when it comes to the Sea of Galilee, and it's, well, the water was rough. Well, what does that mean? Well, John MacArthur gives some good insight in his commentary. Just listen to this about uh, the conditions there on the sea. Listen to this quote. It says, The Sea of Galilee lies nearly 700 feet below sea level in the Jordan Rift, while the surrounding hills rise above, abruptly to about 2,000 feet above sea level. And so the sharp drop of nearly 3,000 feet from the tops of the hills to the surface of the lake creates ideal conditions for the sudden violent storms for which the Sea of Galilee is notorious. The cooler air rushes down the slopes and strikes the surface of the lake with great force, churning the water into whitecaps and creating dangerous conditions for small boats, end quote. And so if you've ever been there or maybe seen a picture or a video of the Sea of Galilee, you understand what this uh, looks like, these massive cliffs in the below sea level. And so just uh, imagine then being in your little wooden boat trying to row with oars uh, while the waves swell around you. In verse 19, we learn that they, they were able to at least row out about three to four miles. So they're not up against shore. They're near the center of, of the lake here. And, and they're rowing for their lives, exhausted, arms like noodles. And the rain and wind is blinding them as they're going. And when all of a sudden, this is where they, uh, their conditions, when who shows up? The one who is missing, right? When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus pulling up in his nice yacht. No. It's Jesus walking on the sea and approaching the boat. And they, they start cheering wildly, right? They're super excited. You're here, Jesus. We've been waiting for you. This is great. They're so excited, aren't they? What does it say? And they were frightened, terrified scared out their minds. We can't fault them. We likely would have been too, don't you think? In the middle of the sea, out on a little wooden boat, out here, they of anybody knew the dangerous spot that they were in. They're about to be toast. They're about to be on the bottom of the sea. You know, I think if we're honest, when we find ourselves in the middle of storms like this where we know the risk, we know the things that could happen. We get scared, terrified, scared out our minds when wave after wave of hard news or big changes bombard us. We can't go anywhere. It seems to just uh, uh, be thrust upon us and we are helpless in the middle of it all. 
some of these work announces that are going through some organizational changes. We fear for our job security. Have I worked hard enough? Have I met my quotas? Are they going to want me? Will I continue on? What's going to happen here? Election season looms, and we fear who might be in charge. What, will they, what kind of policies are they going to make? We go to the doctor for a scan, and they want to order more tests and more scans, and that worst-case scenario just goes on repeat through our minds. Another shooting happens, and we lie awake and wonder at night, when will it happen to us? The transgender contagion just continues to rage on, and we're terrified it will capture somebody that we love. Frightened, terrified, scared out our minds, and on and on and on we could go with storms and things that are beyond our control that keep us awake at night and frighten us. And yet there, in the middle of it all, who stands? It's Jesus. Jesus, who shows up, who has not left us, who has not forsaken us, who controls, has created and controls all of creation and doesn't need a boat to cross the sea. Jesus, who's outside the laws of nature and has everything at his disposal to rescue us. Jesus, who has the answer and the way forward out of the terrifying fear. See, in the midst of storms, let us not be frightened, but be in awe of Jesus, for there he stands in our midst. If we've come to Christ and we're walking with him, he has not left us nor forsaken us, but he is right there in the midst of it all, present there with us, which is really where the text takes us. It takes us there to this, this third point, to have life in his name. And write this down. In the presence of Jesus, be not afraid. See, here's, this is the last point, the last two verses. In the presence of Jesus, be not afraid. Notice how everything changes when Jesus speaks in verse 20. See, how do they, just, just observe it this way. At the end of 19, they're in the midst of the sea. How are the disciples responding? How does verse 19 end? And they were frightened. And then pick it up in verse 21. Then they were glad. How did they go from terrified to rejoicing? Because in between, Jesus speaks very simply, it is I, do not be afraid. Everything changes, church, when Jesus speaks transformation happens where Jesus is. His word changes us audibly here, there, visibly here as we read it. His word changes our mind, changes our heart, changes our actions, and it is so simple in what he says. And the simplicity is what really makes it so profound. Look what he just announces. It is I. I'll be humorous if 
you know, you were out on the middle of Canyon Lake and a storm was rolling in and you couldn't go anywhere and somehow I rolled up and, it, and I show up and I'm like, it is I, Blair Cushman. I'll be like, that's great. Grab an oar, start rowing, man. Serious, <laughs> because I can't do anything to change the scenario. I can't, I, I'm, I'm powerless to, to make the thing. So I'm not capable of much. But when Jesus says, it is I, that's a loaded statement. That means something. When he announces he is here, that means something. It is I means the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has shown up. It is I means the Son of God has shown up. The Son of Man, the one with authority over the entire universe that cannot be taken away. It means that the Word of God has shown up. And on and on the titles that, uh, that, that we've already seen in John. He is here. It's the one who turned water into wine. You have thirst. You need something to drink. Guess who's here? You are on the brink of death. He brought the official son back from the brink of death. You can't walk. He brought an invalid and made him able to walk. Are you hungry? Well, he can feed thousands with a lunchbox. It is I. Christ is here. The creator and controller of the natural world has arrived. The only one who could get them out of this impossible situation was on the scene. It is I is here, therefore, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And note the commanding nature of it all. Jesus isn't chiding them. Like, hey, stop being a bunch of fraidy cats. Nor is it a suggestion. You know, it'd probably be better if you, if you tried not being afraid. But he is commanding them with a gentle shepherding authority, fear not. Fear not. And honestly, church, this command is one of the most repeated commands in all Scripture. Seen over and over throughout the pages of the book that sits in your lap. Just do a, a search this afternoon, this morning, tomorrow morning in your quiet time with the Lord. Put into a search engine, put into your Bible app, type in the words, do not be afraid or fear not, and you will find a plethora of examples. This is very simple. The one that I referenced early, earlier, when Jesus is leading the people, or I mean Moses rather, is leading the people through the Red Sea. As God has just delivered uh, Israel out of their slavery from Egypt after unleashing those ten judgments on, the, uh, on, on Egypt, culminating in the death of the firstborn. And now they are set free uh, with, uh, uh, with all the plunder of Egypt and they're heading out uh, towards the promised land. And Pharaoh wakes up to the reality and, uh, and gets his army. And now they're bearing down upon the Israelites with the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh's army army behind them. And guess what? The Lord tells Moses to instruct the people in. Let me just read it for you. Exodus 14, 10 to 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? 
Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Just fear. Fear making them say foolish things. Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Exodus 14, 10 through 14. That generation needed this reminder. But you know what? They would wander 40 years in the wilderness. That generation would die off. Their kids then, as they entered into the promised land in Joshua chapter 1, guess what reminder they needed? Guess what command they needed? Listen to this, Joshua 1, 8 and 9. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go on and on and throughout the children of Israel's history as they would occupy the promised land, as judges would come and kings would come, good kings and bad kings, as prophets would be raised up to, uh, to speak the word of God to the people over and over as they were facing their enemies, as they were facing uncertain situations. Guess what is on repeat through our Old Testament? Do not be afraid. So move into the New Testament. Right In the opening chapters, at the announcement that the Son of God, the Savior of the world, would be coming. Guess what words, the, out of the, the first words out of the angel's mouth? Fear not. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. At the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, and as he is resurrected, and as the women come to the tomb, guess what the angels say there? Do not be afraid. In between all of it, the disciples needed this reminder yet again as they worried about their physical needs, whether they would be taken care of along their uh, ministry and throughout their life. He says this, Luke 12, 7, Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Redemption, what's the common theme throughout all this? Where God is present, where he has sent his messenger to announce his good news, or when there is a mind saturated on the truths of God's word, and then no fear. Why? Because our mind is saturated on the fact that God is in control. That he is the sovereign one. And when we fix our mind there and not on the storms and not on the problems and not on the things that are beyond our control, it is there when our fear turns to joy, where we go from being frightened to glad. And in between it, Christ. Christ's presence. There he is. It is I. Do not be afraid. And now let's just make sure we're real clear on what this means. Does that just mean that we ignore the storm and act like it isn't happening? 
And we walk out of our house on a morning like uh, today, which is just providential in the illustration of all this, right? That we just walk out and in the midst of the wind blowing and the, and the cold air and the, and, the, and, the, and the rain coming down, we just walk out and we're like, man, it's such a nice day out. I can't even believe, you know. No. It's not that we just ignore it. We're naive to it. But we see the storm through the lens of faith and in the hands of Jesus. Trusting that he will bring us through it. Trusting that in his perfect timing, he will do it all. And for the disciples' case, in verse 21, look, they were glad to take him in the boat. And look at when it happens. Immediately, the boat was to land at the land in which they were going. In their case, it happens immediately. Sometimes it happens immediately for us. Other times, it's a lot a bit slower. It's opposite of a little bit slower. But regardless, regardless of when it'll happen or how long this is going to continue, continue to fix our minds on Christ, in awe of Him, not afraid. But when we let our minds fill in the gaps with the worst case scenario, it is in these moments here, it is in these moments where Jesus is again and again telling you, telling me, telling all of us, telling his followers over and over and over, it is I, do not be afraid. So simple, yet so profound in the storms that overtake us. That in a situation like this where it is only Jesus who can come through, it is only Jesus who can change these uh, circumstances, where it is only Christ who can change the rough seas. Whether we're at something at that extreme or something to a different degree, even still, it is Christ there to us as we walk with him as his children, saying to us, it is I, do not be afraid.